Okay, it's 2.30. Um, hello everyone and welcome to Drusius Ellsman. Uh, we're really grateful to be learning with you again. Uh, the title of this class is, um, O Lord, instill, instill fear of you in all your creations, fear of God at the nexus of divine human kinship with Rabbi Levi Morrow. Um, okay, uh, so just a few notes as we get started. Um, uh, I have invited everyone here to be a panelist. Um, that just means that uh, we'll get to see your smiling faces and you'll be able to unmute yourself um, when we pause for questions, if uh, that's something you wanna do. Um, also, um, as we'll be pausing for questions, we please ask you to stay muted, uh, you know, during the lecture section of this year. And uh, if any questions come up at that time, you can put them into the chat, either here or on Facebook Live. Um, and I'll pass those along when we do uh, take a short pause. Um, okay, so this cl class is about the fear of God, uh, which takes a central place in the High Holiday Liturgy. Uh, three times a day for over a week, uh, we ask God, O oh Lord, instill fear of you in all your creations. Yet fear is an emotion we often regard very negatively. Why are we asking for fear? Um, isn't fear a function of lowliness and depression? The Jewish tradition is rife with answers to this and related questions, mostly attempting to complicate the meaning of fear. Maybe it really means reverence. In this two-part class, instead of trying to redefine fear, we will seek to redeem it, uncovering a deeper understanding of fear's place in human nature and flourishing. Each session will begin with classical text from the Western tradition of political philosophy, which will provide a new understanding of the role fear plays in human life. Then we will use these um, new, sorry, then we will uh, use these new understandings to gain an appreciation of a host of classical Jewish texts from the Hebrew Bible to the modern era and see how fear in its simplest sense can pave the way to freedom, religiosity, and a life of principle and political radicalism, if that's your thing. Um, this week we'll focus on the fear of the sovereign God. Um, Rabbi Levi Morrow, uh, who is teaching today, is a PhD candidate in modern Jewish thought at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem uh, with a focus on political theology. He received smicha from the Shebahar Sephardic um, Center in Jerusalem. Rabbi Morrow uh, wrote his MA in Jewish philosophy on the post-Kokian theology of Rav Shigar at Tel Aviv University and translated a volume of Drashot from Rav Shigar that is forthcoming from Magid Books. He is a research fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America and at the Franz Rosenzweig Minerva Research Center at Hebrew University. Uh, Levy teaches uh, medieval and modern Jewish thought at Yeshivat Araita in Jerusalem, where he and his wife live with their two daughters. And I will pass it over to you. Right. Well, welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, as Maxine wonderfully introduced, um, this is going to be the first of two sessions um, exploring the role of fear and uh, divine kingship and human kingship in uh, thinking about, you know, El and Tishrei and the High Holidays, um, where it comes up in uh, both the, the text of the Tzvilot and the prayers that we say uh, throughout the, the High Holidays, and then also um, in general thinking about uh, the the period of the time, we often hear discussions of Rosh Hashanah as sort of crowning God king and things like that. Um, and 
I think there's uh, there are all kinds of really wonderful things that have been said about that interpretations given throughout the Jewish tradition of both God's kingship and also the question of what does it mean to fear God, to have fear of God, reverence for God, what yira, yira Hashem yirat shemayim means. Um, but I think that there's a, a sort of simple sense to it that's lost, uh, that it can be itself be very meaningful because of how foreign the idea of fear feels to uh, contemporary, you know, modern individuals. Uh, feel like we don't want to feel like we're supposed to be afraid or like fear has any real role in our lives. Um, we feel like it's a bad thing. Uh, so what I want to look at this week and the next week is some sort of foundational texts uh, from the, the Western political tradition that we'll talk about fear and uh, we'll explore them a little this week. Uh, there'll be a little more of those texts because we've just set up the basis. Next week will be a class that you can come to independently, but we'll build on this week so it won't need quite as much background. Um, but, uh, and they will, I think, give some, uh, ideas of what fear can do politically and the way it responds to maybe the part of human nature, uh, and what that, we'll see what that can mean for us religiously. This week, we'll, we'll look, uh, in a sense at what that means if we try and draw a parallel between sort of divine and human kingship. And then next week, we'll look a little more at the way those two things might interact, uh, without, Further ado, I want to share my screen. I'm going to have a, a PowerPoint up. Uh, I think Maxine also has the sources, uh, which will be everything that's on the pair, the PowerPoint for anyone who wants to have them uh, going forward or just look at them, you know, on a single sort of page. Um, but I will also be sharing my screen with the PowerPoint. Okay, so uh, this week, the uh, the general trajectory of discussing fear of God and nexus to divine human kingship will uh, bring us to a focus of uh, fear and forgiveness, right? And the way those two uh, might be intertwined in terms of thinking about human nature. Um, and now obviously we'll reflect on, we'll connect it to the, you know, high holiday season and the idea of um, asking for forgiveness and uh, Yom Kippur praying for forgiveness, and we'll, we'll get to that towards the end. Um, the goals of this class are uh, to reflect on and think more deeply about our concepts, concepts like fear and divine kingship. Um, uh, they're the kind of things that we uh, either grow up with or choose at a later date, but then become accustomed to, and they become sort of second nature to us, um, to the point where you often take them for granted. So this is a good example of this. Um, someone, after I uh, began advertising this class, uh, a colleague reached out and asked if there was a reason I had chosen to use the phrase kingship, particularly when applied to divine kingship, as opposed to like a general neutral term like sovereign or monarch or something like that. And the real answer is I just didn't think about it, right? I think there's good reasons to maybe keep using the uh, ostensibly masculine kingship. Um, but uh, I think that like the real answer is that I didn't hadn't really paused to even think about it. It was a term I'm used to hearing and thinking with. Uh, and so part of what I want to do this week um, and next week, and I hope you'll do along with me, is to reflect on these terms and what they mean and try and uh, examine them a little more thoroughly. Uh, in the process, we'll also look at texts from the Sidur um, and texts from the Tanakh, uh, from the Hebrew Bible, and you know look at them a little more deeply. Uh, finally, and looking at the way that all of those 
uh, affect the way we think about human nature and the, the holidays of this season. Uh, I want to start with uh, this passage from the, the Amidah, the, the, uh, the you know silent prayers of the the Yom Kippur, uh, the Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur filot. Uh, um, and I'll just read. This is my own English translation uh, of this uh, sort of standard Hebrew text. O Lord, instill fear of you in all your works, and terror of you in all that you created. And all the works will fear you, and all the creatures will bow before you, and they will all form one collective to wholeheartedly perform your will. Um, and I'll note that a lot of interpretations of um, of fear of God in sort of the Jewish tradition will. Uh, say, so, well, the term yirah, the most common term uh, involved, really doesn't mean, uh, you know, yirah. It, uh, it doesn't mean uh, like fear. It means reverence or something like that. Um, but here, in addition to the term yirah, you'll also find uh, emata, uh, emata, which means much more clearly fear. Um, and it's just um, hard to avoid the fact that something like the way we think of fear, fear of bad consequences, fear of something happening to us is some, there's some sense of that in terms of um, Yerat Shemayim. There's, the Jewish tradition includes many, many interpretations of what it means to have fear of God. Uh, and so I'm gonna say uh, from the outset that I, this is not going to be exhaustive of the term, um, but I hope to sort of recover a basic understanding of fear in a simple sense as something valuable, as something uh, worth at least thinking about and uh, considering even if, Ultimately, you prefer to think of Yerat Shemayim in some other sense. Um, so I want to look at two uh, philosophers. Maybe like most people have heard of at least one of them, Niccolo Machiavelli. Uh, the other second is Thomas Hobbes. Um, and they are two of us at basic political thinkers. They are part of a school called political realism. The sense of um, the idea that they try and argue for a specific vision of human nature that's realistic as opposed to other thinkers who would be you know more optimistic about human nature or uh some people who wouldn't be called utopian these uh thinkers tend to be considered realists um and the the re obvious response to that is that um realists are just what pessimists call themselves uh that maybe realists are really pessimists and just trying to pretend they're not um but what i think um they push in a good direction in terms of trying to, uh, ex you know, ask what humans are like, right? And not like what we could be like, what how we want to see ourselves or think about ourselves, but is there a gap there, right? Trying to ask that question as well. Is there a gap between um, the way we think of ourselves and the way we actually are? And if so, um, which one do we want to be basing our thinking about human nature on, I mean, on the way we are, on the way we could be? Uh, and, you know, trying to think about that as well. Uh, so Niccolo Machiavelli uh, lives in the, the end of the 1400s, beginning of the 1500s. Uh, it's sort of famous. Uh, interrupt for a second, Rabbi Morrow. Uh, do you mean to be screen sharing? I am. Am I not screen sharing? Um, I don't see it, and I don't think uh, Kathy Friedman does either. Interesting. I'm told, uh, my, I'm being told that I'm screen sharing. But I will stop and start again.
Everyone see it now? My screen sharing now. Um, it's just black for me right now. I think it might be switching over. Um, okay, it might just be my computer then. Um, yeah, other people can see okay. it. I guess okay. we also had the problem and can see it now. So I'm going to assume that it's all good. Great. I can see the screen share. Lovely. Okay, so this is a, uh, a painting of Niccolo Machiavelli. Um, he is uh, somewhat more well known. He's known uh, often because his turn, his name made it relatively quickly into uh, a much more popular uh, usage outside of just you know people interested in political philosophy. Someone can be called Machiavellian, and everyone knows immediately that means the person is, um, if not evil, then at the very least uh, amoral and willing to use. Uh, force to get what they want. <laughs> um, there's some, uh, you know, misunderstandings about that because it's going to come from a book we're going to look at in a second uh, called The Prince that he wrote. Uh, and The Prince is sort of famously uh, encourages that sort of way of thinking. Um, but if you read a sort of broader expanse of his texts, he's actually a, a Republican, is not interested in having uh, a prince, he wants to have a republic. Um, and there have been some interesting readings in recent years of him as maybe certainly supporting democracy, maybe even some form of anarchism. Um, but we're going to look at uh, the, what he's famous for, <laughs> the text that, that says uh, maybe it's a good thing to be feared. Right. Um, so this is from his book, The Prince, uh, which he wrote in 1513, but is really actually published in 1532 after he dies. Um, but the section called of cruelty and clemency, whether it's better to be uh, loved or feared, right? So uh, straight to the point and say, if he's, this book is written as a uh, sort of a guidebook for someone who's going to be uh, a prince, which in this case means just that the much like we think of a king, sort of the singular ruler uh, of a people, uh, and he's going to uh, talk about whether it's better to be feared or loved. Right? So one ought to be both feared and loved, he says, straight straight to the point. But as it is difficult for what the two to go together, it is much safer to be feared than loved. So if one of the two has to be wanting, it wants to go. For it may be said that of men in general, that they are ungrateful, voluble, dissemblers, anxious to avoid danger, and covetous of gain. As long as you benefit them, they are entirely yours. They offer you their blood, their goods, their life, and their children, as I've said before, when necessity is remote. But when it approaches, they revolt, right? So, so people, people aren't great. <laughs> they will give you whatever you want as long as you're good to them, as long as they're not actually, you know, experiencing uh, a sense of need. But as soon as things are tough, as soon as times are no longer, uh, you know, times of abundance, then they will rebel against you. And so the prince who has relied solely on their words without making other preparations is ruined. For the friendship which is gained by purchase and not through grandeur and nobility of spirit is bought but not secured. And the pinch is not to be expended in your service. And men have less scruple in offending one who makes himself loved than one who makes himself feared. For love is held by a chain of obligation which, men being selfish, is broken whenever it serves their purpose. And the fear is maintained by a dread of punishment which never fails. Right, so there's something more secure. He says he's that word here, more secure in fear that love might create a good relationship. But there's no way of sort of guaranteeing the relationship. 
And he's saying fear is ultimately somewhat more certain, that the relationship is more stable because fear appeals to some aspect of human beings more consistently than love does. Um, and so finally, still a prince should not make himself feared in such a way that if he does not gain love, he at any rate avoids hatred. For fear and the absence of hatred may go well together and will be always attained by one who abstains from interfering with the property of his citizens and subjects. I conclude, therefore, with regard to being feared and loved, that men love at their own free will, but fear at the will of the prince, and that a wise prince must rely on what is in his power and not what is in his power of others. So he must only contrive to avoid incurring hatred, as has been explained. Right? So he, he is going to conclude that while he started off by saying, you know, it's good to be loved and feared, ultimately just worry about not like being feared and not actually actively making your subjects hate you. Right. So um, you you know can't control necessarily whether you love they love you. Um, you can do your best to make sure they don't hate you. That is Machiavelli. And if I was going to sum up, and I'll stop share for a second, uh, I'm going to sum up. Machiavelli is saying a um, couple of things. First, that there's you know his people are bad. That's his starting assumption. Um, and we're going to see in a minute that Thomas Hobbes develops this a little more thoroughly and thinks it through. Because the people aren't great. Uh, people, you know, you can have a really good relationship with someone, but uh, the moment things are tough for them, they're going to make decisions sort of on their own, uh, to work for their own sake and based on their own needs. And therefore, he says, you should, as a, a ruler, seek out them fearing. And I think that's interesting. Uh, question that we're going to have to wonder about when it comes to uh, religious text, which is like, if there's a mitzvah to fear God, why does God want to be feared? And sometimes what is uh, God's angle on that per se? Why is that valuable? Right. And so again, we're not going to look at every text that exists on the fear of God, but I think that that is going to represent our starting point. Is also that question as well. Um, I want to get through the Hob text, and then we'll stop for a second to do uh, questions uh, before. Um, before we uh, let's move into the Jewish texts. I'm going to share my screen again. Okay, so this is uh, Thomas Hobbes uh, with the excellent facial hair. Um, he you know, lived um, after, started, was born 50 years or so after uh, Machiavelli, 50 years after Machiavelli died lived to the ripe old age of 91, nice life um, in his time, wrote, like Machiavelli, a variety of texts, but this is the one for which he is famous. Um, this is the famous sort of front page of the, his book, Leviathan. Um, and you can see here, you have this sort of supreme ruler uh, ruling over all of uh, the land, towering over it with crown, sword, uh, as well as the, the scepter, the symbol of the church at the time. Um, there's a lot going on there. Uh, classes and classes have been given on that alone. Um, but we're going to jump into looking at two chapters from text from two chapters in this book. Um, chapter 13, where he's going to lay out what has uh, become known as the state of nature. The question of uh, what are people like outside of a state, outside of political society. And then uh, texts on what's, what are people like, uh, how do we get from the state of nature to a, a state of society. And what Hobbes has in mind for that. Um, so he, this is from chapter 13. Uh, he says, hereby it is manifest 
And during the time men live without a common power, I should note that um, Machiavelli wrote his uh, his book in Italian. I don't remember where that got that translation from, which version. This Hobbes actually wrote in English. That's one of the nice things about Hobbes. He writes manifest that during the time men live without a common power to keep them all in awe, they are in that condition which is called war. And such a war as of every man against every man, right? So there's no power structure to keep people you know, from fighting each other, then you're at war. The war consists not in battle only or the act of fighting, but in a tract of time wherein the will to contend by battle is sufficiently known. This is war, he's going to say, is not just when the people are actively fighting one person against another, but any time where that's how people are going to solve their problems and that the war, could, actual fighting could break out at any time. Whatsoever, therefore, is consequent to a time of war where every man is enemy to every man, the same is consequent to the time wherein men live without other security than what their own strength and their own invention shall furnish them with all. And right, that, that's ultimately what happens when uh, the only way people have uh, to settle issues is their own strength. Right? If it comes down to people have no greater rubric or framework to which to appeal, uh, where they can say, look, I think this person owes me something. Um, I want you, you know, the state to help me get it back. I want there's a court of law or something. Without something like that, then he's, it ultimately comes down to the question of who's stronger, and that's going to lead to just fighting all the time. In such condition, there is no place for industry. And here's an interesting twist. There's no place for industry because the fruit thereof is uncertain, and consequently no culture of the earth, no navigation or use of the commodities that may be imported by sea, no commodious building, no instruments of moving and removing such things as require much force, no knowledge of the face of the earth, no account of time, no arts, no letters, no society, and which is worst of all, continual fear and the danger of violent death. And here's a, a famous line, the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And he says uh, that, assuming he's correct, that the natural state of people outside of uh, a political society is a state of war, a state where people are constantly resorting to strength and physical force to try and resolve their interpersonal difficulties, then you're also not going to get the kind of co cooperation and collaboration you need to build a robust civilization. Another thing to get, you know, is navigation and, uh, you know, import and export across the ocean, um, uh, you know, mass transit, even the arts and things that require luxury and people living together safely and, uh, you know, if, if not happily necessarily, certainly quietly and calmly and without, you know, fighting. All of those, the degree of peace that's necessary for, uh, you know, a rich human life. He thinks you, because he says people, um, you know, are prone to fighting when there's no larger authority to, to you know, sort out their disputes, um, then uh, you, you, so you won't get any things. Right. So through this thought experiment, it may be perceived what manner of life there would be where there were no common power to fear by the manner of life which men that have formed to live, formerly lived under government used to, used to degenerate into in a civil war. Right. This is what it's like when if there were no government and then if the government comes apart, uh, it would uh, read like into a civil war. This sort of life would emerge again. And I think it's important to note here again, he's. Um, sometimes it's basically defined government, what it means to have a government is to have a common power to fear. Right? Some ultimately is if the, the state of nature, the natural state of human beings, he says, is that 
uh, people are just fighting each other one after another uh, all the time. Whoever's stronger wins. Then what ultimately brings people together and stops the small fights uh, between the small, you know, strengths. So you know, each individual person who's see who's stronger than everyone else is to have one power that is stronger than all the others. So one singular person to fear uh, that keeps you from having to worry about that, the sort of anarchy and the violent anarchy of fighting everyone around you. Right, so that's his basic understanding of human nature, um, that he's going to build on that to try and think about how do we get from there uh, to a society, right? So this is chapter 17. Um, and bear with me, this, this part is a little more complicated. I'll explain it as we go. This is the final cause, end, or design of men who naturally love liberty and dominion over others in the introduction of that restraint particular upon themselves. We see them live in, in commonwealths. Right, says the, the ultimate reason which people who don't really want to be ruled, like people love liberty and dominion over others. People don't want to have someone else in charge of them, but they do it for a reason. The reason that people introduce the restraint of you know, government upon themselves is the foresight of their own preservation and the more contented life thereby. Right? People recognize that giving up a degree of freedom is a good way to get a safer life. That is to say, of getting themselves out of that miserable condition of war, which is necessarily consequent to the natural passions of men, uh, when there is no visible power to keep them in awe, and tie them by fear of punishment to the performance of their covenants and observation of laws of nature set down in the previous chapters. Right. Um, so the chapters in between the one we just read and what we're looking at now. Right. So that that um, without government, and this is sort of a key point as well. The returns back to Machiavelli. He says, you, there's no way to keep people to perform their covenants, right? The idea that people might, and Machiavelli is concerned that without fear, you'll have a good relationship with your citizens, right? And they, um, whoever's in charge, um, they will be able to rely on uh, the people they rule to listen to them and to work with them and have a good society when things are good. But when things are tough, then they'll, they'll uh, renege on their covenants. They will not stick to their agreements. So both Machiavelli and Hobbes are concerned uh, that very specific on a very specific point of like long term projects or trying to get people to work together long term requires them to not to make agreements with one another and also like keep making those agreements and make you know sticking to those agreements over time. And both of them think that really requires some sort of uh, larger fear. The only way to erect such a common power as may be able to defend them from the invasion of foreigners, foreigners and the injuries of one another and thereby secure them in such sort as that by their own industry and by the fruits of the earth, they may nourish themselves and live contentedly, is to confer all their power and strength upon one man or upon one assembly of men that may reduce all their wills by plurality of voices unto one will, which is as much as to say to appoint one man or assembly of men to bear their person, right? The Hobbes has really this worked out theory. It's not, uh, not Machiavelli's, uh, you know, the, the prince, the, the hereditary dictator who is in charge by virtue of um, by virtue of uh, like you know being born into the role should in, instill fear upon the subjects. Hobbes is really in many ways the beginning of something like democracy. Um, he thinks that you the everyone uh, should work to come together and agree to appoint uh, a one man or assembly of men he says here he ultimately says it should be one person it should be like a dictator <laughs> um, but he thinks that comes only from the consent of the governed, right? And he has, uh, this would go well beyond our class here, but he has specific conditions under which he's like, yeah, it makes sense to rebel. And the person is no longer, uh, you know, has the authority to really tell you what to do and you should rebel against that, that dictator. Um, 
but he says here the way that we get out of the state of nature out of the state of war is when everyone agrees we'd rather have one person with power over us we agree to be governed uh then you know and therefore we can work together and uh you know create a life that works to get well for to whatever minimal degree that we're happy and able to intensively uh we'd much rather that than be fighting all the time this done the multitude so united in one person is called a commonwealth in latin civitas right the creation of a state this is the generation of the great Leviathan, it's the title of the book, right? Or rather, to speak more reverently of that mortal God to which we owe under the immortal God our peace and defense. Um, and that, that duality of the mortal God and the, under, the immortal God is one we'll return to next week. Um, but for, for by this authority, given him by every particular man in the commonwealth, he hath the use of so much power and strength conferred on him that by terror thereof, he is enabled to conform the will of them all to peace at home and mutual aid against their enemies abroad. Um, right, so the um, final idea here, again, this is sort of round out our, our political background for this class before we jump into some Jewish texts, uh, is that, you know, this is the state, the powerful entity that we can all agree to come together to create corresponds to, or and responds to this understanding of human nature as um, inherently self-interested as uh, potentially open to working together with other people, but also weak and inclined to renege on agreements and back out of uh, you know what, what Hobbes called covenants uh, the moment things get tough. Right? The idea that um, in order for us to commit to things long-term and really try and uh, live a better life, it actually, we need someone who's going to make us or we feel is going to make us. Uh, one thing I want to note before we, we move on is this is still active in um, states today, right? I think this doesn't do a good job of capturing every aspect of what it means to be a citizen, but most people know in, you know, living in a, uh, an established uh, state today that there is a law that in theory, if you break it, uh, you'll, there's punishment for that and you can get caught and punished. And there's different degrees of, you know, how likely you are to get caught, how likely you are to be punished for something. Uh, there's uh, sort of a whole thick uh, and complicated legal system in most countries. And that tends to, uh, you know, buffer us a little bit from sort of the way uh, we think of this, this is sort of immediacy Hobbes depicts and, uh, and Machiavelli depict of like, if you do something wrong, the government is going to punish you and you should be scared of the government. But the basic sense is still there of the government is this body that can make you live up to your commitments. And you have to like keep that in mind, right? So the, this fear and terror that Hobbes talked about doesn't have to be on a sort of immediate level of like, I'm shaking in my boots. Uh, it can be a sort of more austere and almost cognitive fear that you're aware of this and aware that there might be some reason you should be scared in a certain situation which you could choose to enter if you, if you choose to break the law if you choose to attack someone um, and try and sort of provoke the state of war uh, that Hobbes is talking about um, and just uh, because it fits so with this so lovely before we get into talking about the way this fits into religion and thinking about you know fear of God um, there's a text from Mishnah Votes we find the exact same way of thinking about government. Uh, Rabbi Hanina Skana Kohanim used to say, right, the, Hanina, the vice high priest said, uh, pray for the welfare of the government, for were it not for the fear it inspires, every man would swallow his neighbor alive. 
And I said that the, the, it is a good thing to pray for, for government because specifically what government is for <laughs> is because it's for people afraid of the government without which they would, you know, consume each other. They would eat each other alive. I'm going to stop sharing for a second, um, see if anyone has any questions. Um, um, there is, uh, I guess, um, some thoughts from Ozzy Orbach on Facebook. Um, yes. So he says, the Book of Prophets demonstrate, uh, demonstrates that fear may work on a temporary basis in correcting behavior, like cognitive behavioral behavioral therapy, but does not solve the underlying problem as demonstrated by the people going back to their old ways. Um, even God knows that maintaining a sense of fear forever is not psychologically healthy because it diminishes one's sense of freedom of choice, which is necessary for human health. Continuous fear leads to anger, which is really the flip side of fear. Um, thus, all totalitarian regimes ultimately fail. The COVID epidemic shows that telling people what to do doesn't work. There's a lot of different stuff in there. Uh, I will say briefly, and this will also respond to Quincy in the chat as well, that um, the relationship between fear and freedom and liberty and the way fear is not a, a good basis for politics in its entirety. Right? You can't run a society just based on fear uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, I think we'll touch on a little more next week. Uh, next week, we're going to look at um, some work uh, from uh, Spinoza, but it's Spinoza who builds off of Ho uh, Hobbes' picture and then takes it in a different direction. Um, this is a book of, of prophets. Uh, I think paints a very complex picture, also to put it in terms of what comes immediately thereafter. Um, uh, book, of book of Judges. Judges might be, uh, a, in some ways, a story about how Jewish people aren't supposed to have kings, but also maybe need a king. Um, and how those two sit together is a, is a whole different series of classes. <laughs> um, so with that, then I think I'll move on if someone else needs any clarity on anything I've said so far uh, and look at how this might shape the way we think about, um, you know, some primal texts from, uh, from the Torah um, and then at the Chagim. Um, so yeah, I will share my screen again. Second. Okay, um, and so part of what I want to get at here is that um, this idea of fearing God and the way we're going to see it mirrored relatively similarly in the uh, in the same uh, in some of the texts is that sort of the idea of fearing government that we've seen in the text so far today, and the way it'll be matched relatively closely uh, in some basic texts from the, the Torah. Um, is that part of what is being captured is the idea of God as king, where there's some sort of basic parallel there. Um, and there might be, we, uh, that might also have to do with the way, and we're going to get to this towards the end of the class, that like Tanakh actually understands human nature and perhaps uh, in similar ways. So the first text I'm looking at is, this is from the very end of Shemot uh, Perachaf, the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus, um, from after the uh, the you know the Ten Commandments, the giving of the Seret Divrot, uh, when um, you know the people have experienced this uh, revelation in whatever sense. Uh, there's this uh, right before the end of the parsha, before we're going to move into the the code of laws that constitutes Mishpatim. Uh, there's this short little interlude. Uh, it says, am roim et kolot the whole all of you will witness the thunder and the lightning with Koha Shofar 
and the blare of the shofar horn, and the mountain was smoking. People saw it, they fell back and stood at a distance. Right? So the people have experienced this great uh, revelation and they, they fall back, move away from the mountain. They say to Moshe, You speak with us. Then and we will listen. We're here. And God not speak to us lest we die. And Moshe said to the people, Don't be afraid. For God has come only in order to test you. Order that the fear of him may be ever with you so that you do not go astray. Right? So um, I can't explore this in its entirety. We're not going to get into what it might mean that God, you know, came to test you. Um, but the second purpose here is what matters is critical for, for our context, right? In order that the fear of him may ever be ever with you so that you do not go astray. Uh, and the, uh, the root for go astray, chata, is related, of course, to the term for sin. Um, it's interesting, the people are afraid, who are visibly afraid, uh, to the point where they, as a, as a whole collective group, flinch, uh, and they, they shrink back from the mountain. They come to Moshe and say, uh, you know, how about you speak to us, because otherwise we're going to die. So Moshe says, first is don't be afraid. And as the, the uh, commentaries on the, the, this pasuk explain, they don't be afraid that you're going to die, because you have to explain why Moshe says, don't be afraid, God has done this only in order that you should be afraid. Right? So don't be afraid that you're going to die. God doesn't want you to die. God is trying to be scary. Right? And so if we think about the whole scene at Har Sinai, the scene of the revelation of the Ten Commandments, Moshe is saying that it's visibly and sensorily impressive, you know, audible and you smelling the smoke and feeling like there's fire and um, it would have been terrifying. And the reason for that is it's not an accident. It's not that God sort of necessarily... Uh, can only be, you know, do a revelation um, in this manner. There's actually a lot of thought and intention that go into the sound and light show at Har Sinai. That uh, the a lot of depictions of Har Sinai focus on the content of it. And on some level, Moshe is saying one of the most important aspects of this is the Ten Commandments scene is not the content of the Ten Commandments. Like that's important as well. But the whole setting, the theatrics of Har Sinai is just as important. Uh, or, or it's perhaps a, under, a underlying condition that's fundamentally important for the whole project, right? The fear of God should be on your faces. It should be visible upon your faces that you have this fear, or in the English here, that it may ever be with you, so you do not go astray. In a sense, much like we saw in the previous text, that the fear of God is something that works as a preventative, that without it, uh, it you know, you might sin you might go astray you might this fall, uh, fall away from the covenant that's just now being established and that is about to get a whole list of you know rules and commanded ad commandments added to it in the next chapters um the and the the yira the fear is an underlying condition that will let and going to make it possible for people to participate in that uh more broadly and for a, a extended duration right and so on some level, what happens at Har Sinai, and this is also particularly, I didn't bring this text, but if you go back to the beginning of the Har Sinai scene at the, the previous chapter, Shemot uh, Yotet, Exodus 19, is where you get the famous passage of, um, you know, the, the Jews will be a kingdom of priests, 
Um, but God says, I will be to you as a God, and you will be to me as a, uh, a goy kadosh, a melacha kohanim, an amgla, uh, that we will be sort of a special people for God. Is they, this is a moment when God appears as sort of the, the sovereign, the king of the Jewish people, the, the uh, you know, God of the Jewish people, uh, and says, we're going to create this, this covenant, this breach, this is the creation of the breach between the Jewish people, the covenant of Jewish people and God. And an underlying part of that is the question of, you know, what's going to keep the Jews from um, backing out at any moment of this covenant? And it's also worth noting this, uh, you know, the scene of Har Sinai caps a series of, uh, you know, minor rebellions in the desert. It's not the last one. There'll be more in the book of Bamidbar, book of Numbers. But between the, the leaving Egypt in uh, Bereshit, Yudbet, Yudgimel, uh, and the uh, you know the the twelfth and thirteenth chapters of Shemot, um, and when they get to the the mountain in, in you know um, chapters eighteen nineteen of um, of Shemot, there are multiple I think I don't know, five I think, but there are multiple times where the Jews already uh, rebel against Moshe and already say like oh things were better in Egypt, right? So the Jewish people are already uh, having trouble committing long term. <laughs> to the going to be with God out in the desert model uh, of, of you know, they're experiencing now or wherever that's going to lead. Um, and Moshe is saying, this is meant to be scary because you're gonna remember this and it's going to help you get through the moments when you might otherwise uh, not be as strong-willed and not be able to uh, you know, follow the rules that you, you might otherwise wish you were following. You're not gonna be able to be helping build the society that you wanted to be building um, you without this fear. The fear will help you keep doing that, even when uh, your lesser nature might get the better of you. Uh, and we're looking now at sort of two instances of the mitzvah uh, for uh, fearing God, right? It, it, it's a mitzvah to fear God uh, that comes from explicit psukim, and noting their context will help us, you know, when they flesh this out in light of some of the, the ways we've been thinking about politics so far and thinking about um, ultimately. The Jewish people and the, the as a polity, as in some sense of um, a society that is being constructed with God as the sovereign of that society. Right? That's really, uh, in some sense, what's happening with this mitzvot. And so this is from the, the sixth chapter of Devarim. Uh, Take heed that you do not forget the Lord who freed you from the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. Um, it's a fear only the Lord your God and worship him alone and swear only by his name. Right. So here the uh the fearing of God comes specifically in context of uh, the question of whose name do you use when you swear? And do not go after other gods from the other nations that are around or the gods of the nations that are around you. Uh, the Lord your God in your midst is an impassioned God or a jealous God in more traditional, traditional translation. Uh, lest the anger of the Lord your God blaze forth against you and he wipe you off the face of the earth. Right, so the, the last verse here worth noting is one of those verses that we as modern people often um, have the most trouble with. His God is a jealous God is a, a hard um, pill to swallow, a better pill to swallow. 
Um, but I think it's worth thinking before we even get to that about the, the previous verses, right? Take heed that you do not forget the Lord who freed you from the hand, land of Egypt, the house of bondage. Um, and not forgetting God is a theme throughout Sefer Devarim. But it's a, it hits on exactly the point we've been talking about of the question of long term, right? As people, are we going to be able to, as Jews, you know, and as human beings, are we going to be able to, to maintain this society, this um, like people who live according to the Torah long term? Is that something we're up for and capable of? And what are the conditions for us to do that? And um, as well, the, the you know immediately after the the commandment to fear here comes the question of other gods and other the gods of the peoples around you, right? That the question is, can we maintain long term this one commitment to um, the, the our God that we've you know, already committed to, and what's the likelihood we're going to seek out other sovereigns, other you know sources of power, um, other people to to listen to. Um, and the, this mitzvah is asserting that uh, if we can bring ourselves to, to think about God in terms of fear, in terms of there are consequences for our actions, uh, then that will enable us to maintain this, this long term. Uh, and the next, the other time in Devarim this comes up is in the 10th chapter. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God demand of you? Only this, to fear the Lord, to walk only in his paths, to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. To uh, love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, to keeping the Lord's commandments and laws, which I enjoin upon you today for your good. Mark the heavens to their uttermost reaches, belong to the Lord your God, the earth, and all that is on it. All right, so here, I think this is also important because um, as we touched on before, once we asked questions about it, um, before we started looking at the Torah texts, fear is not the only aspect of the, uh, you know, this polity, this society where we're seeing the Torah envisioned with Hashem sort of at the, the head of the society. Uh, it's not just about fear, right? Fear is uh, one of multiple things that we're being told that God asks you only to do all of this, you know, list of things, fear God, walk in God's paths, love him, serve God um, with all your heart and soul, commandments in the Torah, uh, right? Um, so there's a variety of things here, but one of the key aspects of it is fear. So fear is, as I'm hitting on throughout, it's an underlying condition. It's sort of a, a bedrock. Fear is what enables people in this vision of human nature to, um, to, you know, create the rest of the life we want to live, right? To the degree that walking in God's uh, paths and loving God and serving God and following the uh, the mitzvot, you know, keeping the commandments, are um, you know part of a much larger project. Things that we want to do with other people, things that we want to do day after day, year after year. Uh, then the question becomes: How do we see ourselves? How do we think about ourselves in ways that will keep us doing that, even on the days when it doesn't feel comfortable? Right. And I return to Machiavelli, who said. Um, that if you build a relationship based on, on you know, uh, the fact that it feels love 
Um, but I might say in some sense, he just means by love, like the fact that it feels good, the fact that I enjoy doing something is my basis for doing it. And I am drawn to doing a basis for doing it. Uh, when, you know, life gets tough, when, when things get busy, when, uh, you know, uh, so mentioned earlier, COVID, when there's a pandemic and everything suddenly changes, um, what are the commitments I keep to? What are the commitments I don't keep to? Uh, a, a basic at underlying aspect of that is a question of what do I think there are consequences for, like, for my actions, right? When I think there are consequences, uh, which are the most basic understanding of what fear means in this context, um, though that's going to be an important part of, um, you know, what I actually keep to and what I don't keep to. I want to look. Um, Quickly at, let's see how much time left. Okay, we got about ten minutes left. Um, I'm gonna leave some time for questions at the end. So I'm not going to do the next section, which is uh, a couple of medieval interpretations um, that reinforce this way of thinking about uh, the mitzvot. Uh, which is a book that goes through all of the mitzvot from the Rambam's collection, uh, listing of the 613 mitzvot, um, and this lays out again basically the same way of thinking about um, fear of punishment uh, as the, the meaning of fear of God um, and this is from Rambam Maimonides Mordevuchim the guy for the perplexed um, and uh, this is from near the end of it um, where he goes through again this sort of idea um, that he says that talks about seeing I think yourself as always being in the presence of the king and that it should create a sense of um, humility, awe, and fear um, that will keep you doing the right thing at all times because you always see yourself sort of in the presence of the king. Um, and this will come back to uh, next week in a version of it cited by uh, later commentators. Um, I want to look quickly at what this means for us in terms of thinking about forgiveness and the uh, human nature uh, in, you know, in the terms of the Jewish calendar more, and, you know, Jewish thought and Jewish text more broadly and specifically in terms of, you know, this moment in the Jewish calendar. Um, this Sefer Bereshit, the book of Genesis, includes a variety of statements about human nature, um, but I'll hit on two from both before and after the flood, the, you know, the, the one that God brings upon the earth when he sees that people are not capable of living, a, you know, a good life, not creating a good society together, things are going terribly. Um, there's a very interesting statement before and afterwards um, that uh, touches on exactly this sort of issue, right? The Lord, um, sorry, the English, the Lord saw how great was man's wickedness on earth and how every plan devised by his mind was nothing but evil all the time, right? And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and his heart was saddened. We have zero time to get into what it means for God to regret something um, or to be sad. Um, but the this is the introduction to the flood, essentially, right? God sees that people are not working out because people are bad. Uh, and therefore, God brings the flood, right? I'm going to jump forward two chapters. Um, after the flood, Noah comes out of the flood, and one of the things he eventually does is brings korbanot, brings sacrifices. The Lord smelled the pleasing odor of Noah's sacrifices, and the Lord said to himself, never again will I doom the earth because of man, since the divine devisings of man's mind are evil from his youth, nor will I ever again destroy every living being as I have done. Right? So God says, I'm no longer going to be cursing the earth because of man, because man is terrible. Right? Um, and I think when I first sort of realized what that said, it very much surprised me, probably for other people as well, right? You'd expect God says, oh, I'm not going to, you know, I don't, I'm not going to bring 
a flood on the earth ever again. I'm never going, I'm going to stop sort of cursing the earth. And notably, the Kaleo Oda Tatamat cursed the earth, recalls not just the flood, but also the punishment to Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, at the end of the third chapter of Rishit of the Torah, um, and then also to uh, Kayan after, you know, the, the in some sense, the blood, the earth is uh, filled with the blood of Kayan's uh, first murder, murdering Hevel, um, the earth is cursed again. Then, um, so the this is where, this is all, like God says, all of the bad things people have done so far, I'm going to stop punishing them for it. I'm going to stop making consequences for that. Um, be, not because people have have redeemed themselves, people have have done great things and sort of come out of it, but because people are are bad. <laughs> uh, like there's some sort of fundamental underlying evil in human beings, um, and they're because of that not going to have strict consequences the same way, right? And so this is um, you know cuts a, some degree against what we've been talking about so far, but the need for some vision of consequences because people are are not always good at living up to their commitments without that uh, and not good at therefore creating a society without that. Um, but part of it also that if people are going to also have trouble by nature living up to their commitments and notably um, like this is a, a outside even of the field of political philosophy and moral philosophy as well going back you know for as long as people have been doing moral philosophy all the way back to say Plato and Socrates and the like uh, Aristotle, there have been discussions of why do people fail to live up to what they want to do, what they think they should do, right? It is a, a fact of human beings that we don't always live up to who we want, we want to be. Um, and that's arguably why we have, you know, in Judaism, a once a year uh, period of time for asking for forgiveness and for believing that Hashem forgives us. And it's not as we can use this time to make ourselves as if we hadn't sinned, right? We can suddenly make it as if we were, were perfect and we're always going to be perfect. It's because in some degree we recognize that like this is, that there is a, we are flawed beings who don't always live up to our, uh, our perfection, our, our ideals for ourselves or the Torah's ideals for ourselves. Um, and that part of tshuva in that model, part of thinking about the, the tfilos, the prayers of the high holidays, is exactly this question of like, can I accept myself? Can I accept other people around me, right? Forgive people who I think have wronged me, not because they fixed it, but because I recognize that like, they was not, they, not their ideal self is not the person who wronged me. They, they wronged me because of human nature not being everything it could be. That human nature is, uh, it's, low it's not, there's nothing to get excited about necessarily. Human nature, you can take a, a sobering and realistic view of it in some sense. Uh, and that's why the the return to the text from which we started. This is a utopian vision from the uh, right from the uh, vision of the future uh, of a perfect world in some sense from the the tefillah, right one in which God has united all creations into one group to do God's will. Um, but it's a, while a utopia also very realistic because it's not one where people suddenly change where human nature has changed. Rather, God has worked with human nature uh, by using fear to bring people together in a way not dissimilar from that depicted in um, in in the political text we looked at. Um, so that's this week. I uh, would love to take some questions. I'll say quickly as a way of summing up. I think um, that this should give us what to think about in terms of uh, human nature, in terms of the Chagim. Uh, as I mentioned, we will next week also explore further 
uh, like how what this might look like with fear as the basis for something that's not limited to fear. The way fear might open us up to other aspects of a, of a well-lived human and religious life and social life. Okay, I see there's some questions in the chat. Uh, there might also be some um, uh, Facebook. Maxine, do you think you want me to tackle first? Um, no, it's okay. I um, I don't see anything on Facebook, so I guess uh, we'll just go through the chat here. Great, thank you. Uh, okay, from uh, Noah Batmiri, how does an acknowledgement of bad human nature relate to God's supposed love of humanity or any subset thereof? Does God love bad things? Right, that's a really good question. Um, and I think part of it is just a, not just a question about God, right? If you say that uh, part of human nature is that where we often fail to live up to uh, to who we want to be ourselves and how we think we should be and how we think people should be in general, then part of that is saying that what it means to love another human being is to love them uh, at the very least despite that and accepting that about them, that they're not always going to be who they want to be and who they wish they could be, who you wish they could be, certainly. Um, and in a, uh, this is a, a much larger tangent, the question of like, might love, um, might love mean loving people specifically because of their own unique failings, right? What makes them them is in fact the specific ways in which they fail to live up to their personal and our societal ideals for you know who they should be. Um, right, other questions, um, Quincy, is this then fear, a very utilitarian process? You don't see fear of God as a duty we must do or emotional virtue, but a calculation to ensure security. Is any virtue and a fear of God not based on future utility? A fear of God is a good in itself. And I mean, okay, so the, it's a good question. Is there a way of thinking about fear of God where it itself is valuable? Uh, or is it purely that fear of God helps you attain some other ends? Um, that is a, a good question. It's a much broader question about um, the... Um, much broader question about the misquote in general, but we would have values or like purposes. Um, one thing I'll say is the question of if fear is a, a its own value, then you can't give any reason for it. You can't say it's it's its own value because it achieves X, Y, or Z. Because then you've said really some X, Y, or Z is the value. Um, I think this is a, a much more utilitarian model for understanding fear of God than some understandings of it might be. But I think that's what I was trying to get at, is that I think there is a sort of basic sense here um, where um, like it's on a, a really basic level of like fear of consequences is a good thing for, for life in general. Um, and that because of a sense of human beings as not perfect, right? If you have a sense of human beings as like they don't need to be afraid of things in order to, to be perfect all the time, they don't need the consequences, then this becomes more complicated. But um, if you think fear is like, if you think that human nature is um, fraught sometimes, then this can be very valuable. Um, from that one last question, how does Torah's fear differ from or similar to sacrifices, for example, to the volcano that it not erupt? Um, so this will be a good lead in towards questions also of next week, um, because part of the uh, the question is, um, what's the difference between, say, fearing God versus fearing the volcano? Uh, part of that is a question of how um, do we identify with the ends of the society, with the goals of the society, with God's goals, with the volcano's goals, as it were. Um, simply fearing uh, God and simply fearing the volcano in order to uh, not get hurt is a basic level, right? There's something valuable with that, but the uh, something like understandable of that. 
um, if we really thought bringing sacrifices to the volcano would keep us alive for longer, uh, we'd be justified in doing so, I think. Um, it, but the question is, does it, you know, the way does the parallel break down? Is maybe Judaism, uh, the Torah about, you know, using fear to create some sort of larger project, larger site thing that we really think is valuable, right? But we actually identify with the goal of it. It's not just about like saving our own lives, it's actually about achieving something uh, or making ourselves into something better. Um, in which case the, the volcano would be, would not be the same because the volcano model is just about like saving our own lives in the immediate presence. Um, not about trying to attain some other more worthwhile goal and trying to become someone better. So I think that that's our time. Um, yeah, just if I can uh, quickly bring in two more thoughts from Ozzy, right when I yeah, absolutely. on Facebook, I, uh, yeah. expected. um, so his first comment ties in really nicely uh, with what you were just saying, I think. Um, he, uh, this is from, yeah, I guess, uh, okay. Uh, people thought they were going to die at Sinai, Moses said, uh, do not have fear of being punished because God is not trying to kill you. But the lightning show is meant to create a sense of awe in the Jewish people. Test usually implies a test of love, like in God testing Abraham or Yonah. Um, God being angry simply means that there are consequences to human sin. It is not anger in the human sense of the word. Uh, man being sinful from his youth sounds like the original sin. Uh, fear may be a necessary first step, but can't carry us all the way. And then he also says, often when we say God is angry, we're projecting um, feeling about ourselves onto God. Uh, because we worship idols, we feel that God should be angry at us and should punish us. But God does not punish um, as much as we punish ourselves. Um, yes, any interesting. Some of that is I agree with in terms of fear, you know, not being the only uh important element here and trying to build something larger. Um, uh, I think the question of projection is interesting. It's why I actually wanted to start with Machiavelli and the question of like, if God gave us a mitzvah to fear God, uh, why is that and what might that, that be that why might that be valuable? Because that's not about what we project on God, uh, that's as it were about what we see as a commandment and a mitzvah and, and the role of that. Um, as for again. The question of fear as a basis and trying to get beyond that, you'll have to come back next week. Okay, great. Uh, thank you, Rabbi Morrow. And uh, thank you to everyone you. for uh, participating, you know, for being part of our learning community. Um, tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern, we're going to be having um, the first of two sessions with Professor Benjamin Summer. Um, he'll be taking us through Psalm 27 in Hebrew with a careful eye. And if you're here, um, you're probably interested in Jewish thought. And you might also really enjoy Dr. Jorbandi's um, class on Heschel's transformative classicism uh, meeting on Tuesdays at 2.30 Eastern. And we have over a dozen classes scheduled for the El Osman um, with really great teachers. Uh, and you can learn more and register at elul.drisha.org. Um, that's it for today. Thank you. Have a good afternoon, evening, all that.